the Japanese word is kaizen, which is continuous improvement. Always thinking, was there a better way to do something that seemed to go well, seemed to go really, really well? Every time that you do something, it could have been actually better. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. We're very lucky to have Dr. Ken Yamaguchi on the show with us today. And bear with me, he is very accomplished, so I have a fair amount to discuss about him prior to his introduction here. Dr. Yamaguchi completed his orthopedic residency training at George Washington University, and then subsequently completed fellowship training in shoulder surgery at the internationally recognized shoulder service at the Columbian Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, followed by additional training in elbow surgery at the Mayo Clinic. He also obtained his MBA at the Olin School of Business at Washington University. Dr. Yamaguchi is an author of more than 200 publications and has also given more than 150 presentations nationally and internationally. In 2014, he received the Ann Donner Von Kappa Delta Award, considered the Nobel Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Orthopedic Research. And Dr. Yamaguchi has also been very active in the medical device innovation space, contributing to the design of several devices in the shoulder and elbow specialties. In 2015, Dr. Yamaguchi joined Centene, a Fortune 100 healthcare enterprise, as their chief medical officer. Dr. Yamaguchi, welcome to the show and congratulations on all of your accomplishments. Thank you, Justin. It's a privilege to be with you today. So I'd really love to start at the beginning and really understand just how you ended up doing all of the things you're doing. And you're quite accomplished at this point. And I think our listeners are aspiring or active healthcare innovators, and they're looking to learn from you about lessons and tips and tricks and pearls to success or making difficult decisions and things like that. So what drew you to medicine in the first place? Growing up in high school, were you interested in medicine? What led to that initial spark? Honestly, I can't tell you that I always was interested in medicine. I went into college getting a bachelor's in science, but I was not pre-med. Honestly, I thought that doctors worked too hard and I didn't want to do that. (laughs) And guess what? I was right. (laughs) But towards the end of my undergraduate career, I, I met a couple really influential doctors and they really inspired me to head towards medicine. I think it was just as simple as that, you know, mentorship, people you admire doing things that seem to be really neat. And once I started thinking about going into medicine, I couldn't think about doing anything else. So that's kind of how it happened. And once you started in medical school, what drew you to the field of orthopedics specifically? I think I was just like many medical students. I try to keep an open mind. And when I went through my clinical rotations, after each one, I thought they were so amazing that I felt like I was going to be first a pediatrician, then a OBGYN, then an internal medicine doctor, and except for psychiatrists. I don't think I ever saw myself being a psychiatrist. But all the physical medicine disciplines I really liked. But I think I was drawn towards orthopedic surgery because I did a rotation and, and I saw myself fitting with the people there, the culture there. 
for one thing, but it just seemed more interesting than everything else. And I like the aspect of improving quality of life rather than being in life and death situations. And the other part about it was I am kind of sportsy. I love sports. I wish I was better at sports in terms of playing them, but I also enjoy playing sports too. And I think there was a part of that that made me gravitate towards orthopedic surgery too. What kind of sports did you play growing up? A lot of baseball. And to this day, I'm a, just an absolute baseball fanatic, as a fan, that is. But starting in college, I became a pretty avid tennis player and still am a pretty avid tennis player to this day. But yeah, no, all the usual sports, basketball, just playground football, never organized football, but organized baseball and organized basketball. So you decide to go into orthopedics, you're attracted to the sports and the people, which is also what drew me into the field as well. I remember we had five minutes in between cases and the highest priority of our team was to get to Fat Burger to get lunch. And I just knew then that that was the specialty for me. What started drawing you into the field of shoulder and elbow? And it was a relatively newish field at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. When I applied for fellowship, there was only two major fellowships, which was Columbia University and University of Washington in Seattle. The reason why I gravitated towards shoulder was my chairman at George Washington was uh, Robert Neviser, one of the real pioneers of shoulder surgery. His father was a shoulder surgeon. And we saw some really unique amounts of volume and pathology and outcomes in shoulder at George Washington. And I really thought it was so interesting. It also played in well with my favorite sport as a spectator and the one I was most interested in, which is baseball. Also, it seemed to be a challenge. It was one of these specialties that was just emerging when I became interested in it. And there was certainly a gap at that time in terms of information as compared to the knee and hip. So there seemed to be an area of opportunity where you could really make a difference too. So I applied to both shoulder fellowships and a couple different sports fellowships at the same time because that was the only other way to learn shoulder was through sports at that time. And the rest is history. Would you say that you are drawn to doing things a little bit differently or the unknown? Because you start to have a track record of innovation and creativity throughout your career. <laughs> I don't know if that's warranted as a comment, but I think I do tend to, I know one thing for sure, uh, after every surgery that I perform, I always think about what went right and what went wrong with attention towards what could have been done better. And I always think about, okay, this part didn't go as well as I wanted. What could I have done to make it better? I think it's just asking those questions constantly that makes you think about different ways to do things. If you have that kind of orientation, they call it kind of like the uh, lean methodology, or the Japanese word is kaizen, which is continuous improvement, you naturally orient yourself towards thinking about a creative solution towards what could potentially be a problem. I think it starts with always thinking, was there a better way to even do something that seemed to go well, seemed to go really, really well? Being in academics also is a very wonderful environment for that to happen because you're speaking to residents, students, and fellows all the time. One of the keys to creativity is actually youth. People that are younger tend to be more creative because they're not as burdened with the old ways of doing things. And they're not as burdened as, oh, it's my way is the best way or things like that. So part of it starts with thinking every time that you do something, it could have been actually better. And then going from there and thinking about it and discussing it. 
That's really fascinating. You mentioned something interesting about healthcare professionals earlier in their careers, like residence fellows, maybe people out early in practice. And I get a lot of them reaching out to me, reaching out to us, and they have a lot of ideas. They want to create a company or they have a technology or a device. But at that point in your career, it's very difficult to have time, to have ownership, to have any sort of real influence or clout to get anything done. And then making those decisions of do you stick with clinical practice or how to balance your time? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, do we need to think about empowering some of these earlier career innovators so that we may be missing out on some pretty impressive technologies or innovations because we're having them work too much and not really incentivizing them to really want to spend time on innovating? Yeah, you know, I uh, think younger people we work with are plenty incentivized to contribute. They're not burdened with some of the real-life realities of medicine, all the documentation issues and billing issues and all that stuff. And they have a lot of idealism, which can hopefully feed a lot of the energy that's required to make these innovations and do well in medicine. So I think what needs to be there more than anything is really embracing ideas and encouraging discussion with young people. And sometimes there's too much deference by them to the way things have always been done and the way things seem to be dictated to them from attendings and more senior people. So that would be one thing I'd say. And the academic environment, what I really love about it is there's constant discussions, there's constant questions about it. One of the things that I think more senior people can do is ask questions too. What do you think? What do you think went wrong? What do you think went good about this case? How would you do it better? They may not have a good answer to that, but the discussion can actually lead to a better answer because of the dialogue. What I'm saying is pretty well documented in research and other and just personal experience that the best ideas usually come from younger people. Actually, I think the research shows that we plateau in terms of our creativity in our late 20s. (laughs) So I'm way over the hill for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, you don't have to say yeah and agree so easily. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I feel it leaving me, but this podcast can be the last spark of our mutual creativity here. You brought up another interesting thought for me around understanding business and the business of medicine. That often is a key part of being a successful innovator as well. You were able to obtain an MBA during your career, and I'm curious how that experience was for you and how you went about making that decision and whether or not you thought it was valuable. It's interesting because a lot of people ask me at the time I was preparing for an MBA, the time I was getting an MBA, and after getting an MBA, why did you do this? What were you trying to prepare for? What's this next step after this? And I would honestly tell them I did it because I was really interested and I wanted the experience and I wanted to learn. And that was pretty much 100% of the reason. And nobody would believe me. Oh, you're just hiding it. You must want something with this. And I said, no. I think the reason I got really interested in it was two things. Number one is I was always been very interested in leadership, especially what made people great leaders and what didn't. And read several books about it. And each time I found some of the things so insightful, I just love to read about great people in our past. One of the people that I'm fascinated about, for instance, is Abraham Lincoln. And I participated in the AOA, the American Orthopedic Association leadership series that they used to have a long time ago at the Kellogg Business School. They had six modules and I took them all. 
And after I would come out of them, just absolutely charged. I just thought it was so interesting. And I would be really excited about the things I was learning. And I realized there was a huge world of information that physicians don't even have a clue about. There's not much in our training that helps us to understand how to manage people, to understand organizational behavior. And there's not much training about how to lead people. And much of medical training is all about ourselves. You know, how hard do we work? How many hours do we put in and stuff like that? It's not about team building, for instance, and things. So the impact that any of us can make tends to be limited because we're not spreading that impact through many, many people as a team. So I was really fascinated about it. And I worked on a couple years worth of preparation to set up the stage to do the executive MBA. And when I did the MBA, it was everything I imagined it would be and more. I was actually preparing to do it at Kellogg. And then there was a Wall Street Journal poll that Washington University's Olin School of Business did extremely well on it. I think it was ranked in the top five worldwide for executive MBAs at that time. Now, there's many polls with very different rankings, so you could just take that or leave it. But I realized that there was a great business school right in my backyard, and I didn't have to travel to Chicago. And so I did it there, and it was amazing. They said that you should count on 20 hours of work per week. I'm pretty sure that in the first half of the MBA, I was doing more than that. I think I was closer to 30 hours a week. And it was because just like most things in life, you get what you put into it. And I really wanted to get a lot out of it. And it was just so interesting. It was absolute fun. It was absolute joy. And I started thinking about how I might be able to apply these things in the future. Didn't really have a destination in mind, but I certainly did find out what I didn't know a little bit. I was starting to get to know what I didn't know and have an understanding for it and said, maybe there is an avenue to use this information to achieve my own personal missions. I think the most ringing endorsement of an MBA we've had on the podcast so far. And I think something you said there that really resonated with me that I think experienced firsthand was as I entered the world of business, I had an assumption that as a physician, I was on teams and leading teams for a number of years and that I kind of knew how to manage people and, and knew how teams worked. And it was really a humbling experience. I realized I knew very little about it. And there is a lot of years of information and knowledge and standards and norms that in medicine, we're just kind of doing our own thing and is not necessarily the best structure for how to manage an organization, like you say. So I wish I had had an MBA prior to coming into this and have some of that background, but definitely uh, got thrown in the deep end. So. As all of this is going on, you're involved in medical device design and innovation. Where on the timeline did, did that take place? How'd you get started with that? And is that something you really enjoy and continue to do? Well, I didn't have the natural abilities you had, Justin, so I needed to have a more formal learning environment. My experience with medical innovation happened prior to business school. Well, it's actually prior and during and after. Honestly, I don't know if the business school experience helped a ton in that. That was more about using your clinical insights to help design better implants. I would say that, yes, after business school, I had a different viewpoint of cost effectiveness of different things. You know, as, as doctors, we say, we want this widget and that widget, and we never put in the context of the cost of the widget. 
And those things become extremely important in today's world where there's a fixed universe of resources. And if you make a decision to do one thing, you're essentially making a decision not to do something else because the resources are not there for that. So that part was pretty important. And I would say the next generation of implants that I was involved in had a significant component of practicality in addition to clinical innovation. For the most part, device innovation is a clinical exercise. The device companies themselves should provide most of the other aspects of the business portion of device innovation. Traditionally, that's been a way for more business or innovation-minded clinicians to kind of be creative and get involved and push themselves to the next level. But more and more, I see that shifting more to software technology, enabling technologies and innovation. And I think that leads us to a really exciting and pretty significant turn in your career where you joined Centene. So can you give us a little bit of the story of you know, how, how that came to be? That's, it's, just, it's still so amazing to me. It's kind of surreal to me too still. For the audience, first of all, Centene is a Fortune 24 healthcare enterprise. It is a managed care company similar to United, Anthem. It's actually the third largest behind those two. It's not as well known as Anthem and United because our health plans are under different names than Centene. We use local names for our health plans. For instance, in California, we are HealthNet California. In Florida, we're WellCare. In New York, we are Fidelis. Basically, I got a call out of nowhere about seven years ago six and a half years ago from the CEO. At that time, I was really looking into becoming a chairman at a different program from Washington University. And it's very close to leaving St. Louis. And he said, I heard you're going to leave WashU and St. Louis. And I said, I don't know, but it's possible. And he said, well, if you're going to leave, what about us? And honestly, I was thinking, okay, who are you guys? Because <laughs> I didn't know much about Centene at the time either. But he said, are you willing to talk about it? And we had breakfast. And prior to the breakfast, I thought about it and I said, there's going to be two really important issues in my mind. One was I could never stop being a doctor. I felt like it was my calling in life. I basically said to him, look, before we get too far into the conversation, I just want to let you know that there's no possible way I could stop being a doctor. I don't care what the opportunities are ahead of me in this role. That to me is a guardrail issue. And he said, well, Number one, I don't want you to stop being a doctor. We actually are the only company in managed care that actually requires all of our physicians to continue practicing because we want our physicians to be connected to the patient care mission. You just tell me how much you want to practice. So I told him I would want to be able to operate once a week and see patients half a day a week at a minimum. And he said, fine, done. We'll support that and we'll help support your research and help support your speaking engagements too. And I said, wow, that was as simple as that. And then he goes, do you have any other big issues? And I said, yes. If I get involved, I don't want to just be pigeonholed as a doctor in a company. I want to be involved in all strategic matters and learn the business and really give clinical medicine a seat at the table. He said, well, that's exactly why we want you. The chief medical officer was a senior VP position, and we will now make it an executive VP position. And we definitely want strong clinical input and for you to build out an organization. At that point, I was like going, wow, this is amazing. 
at that stage in my career, it also represented a really neat challenge to do something different and make a difference. He basically said, how many people do you operate on a year? And how many people do you reach through your research? I was pretty proud to say it's probably several thousands of people, or maybe even tens of thousands. And he said, well, how would you like to be the last word on 25 million people? How would you like to make a difference to the poorest people in the United States? That's what Centene does. I got in at a great time. When I came into Centene, it was about a $20 billion company. And now it's a $120 billion company six and a half years later. I've been able to see a ton of growth and build out large organizations for the benefit of clinical care. And it's, it's really been just an amazing experience. Wow. Both your commitment to patient care and also the way Centene works is really admirable. When you started out there, what was the learning curve like? Did you just feel right (laughs) at home or? It was terrible. I I felt for for years, I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hydrant. I told the CEO in that first meeting, I said, do you realize that I'm an orthopedic surgeon? I said, the rest of medicine laughs at orthopedic surgeons in terms of our... (laughs) In terms of our general medical knowledge. And he said, no, that's not what I want you. He said, I want you for team building to build out a new organization. He said, you surround yourself with great doctors to help you with these decisions. And that's what I did. I built a great team of people around me who covered for me and was patient as they taught me the business. It was through the use of their knowledge and their dedication to clinical care that we were able to build something really wonderful. And they became some of my closest friends and will always be some of my closest friends. And it's pretty amazing. One of the things that I really learned is, you know, I was at a department at Washington University filled with extraordinary people some of the top surgeons in the world at what they did. And I came to Centene and on the C-suite and found out I was surrounded by extraordinary people again. They were not doctors, but they were extraordinary people. And the other thing I really learned was that mission was extremely important on the business side and that providers don't have a monopoly on the mission. It's actually similarly strong on the payer side and that there's many more similarities between the organizations than there was in terms of that mission and about providing care than I ever imagined. Michael Neidorf, the CEO, had told me, hey, we're not the dark side. We got to take good care of people because for one thing, it's good business, but it's, it's about what we do. And I really found that to be true. It was enlightening. And I do feel like a lot of what's problematic about healthcare and what is problematic about the cost of healthcare is because there's so much distrust between payers and providers and misinterpretation of incentives. And much of that can be bridged easily by just a little bit better empathy. Hmm. Your colleagues in academic medicine, how did they feel about your career move? I'm not sure. (laughs) You'd have to ask them. (laughs) I get the impression that initially they thought I was crazy, that I had a great academic career and I was walking away from it. I'm sure certain people thought that this was a pure income move. But I think that now after several years, there's a lot of people that look at that move as as, wow, you got lucky. Because I certainly get a lot of requests from academic people and otherwise, hey, if you ever hear of another opportunity like this and stuff like that, please keep me in mind. Or how did you do it? How could I do it type of stuff? I get a lot of that now. So I suspect that a move that would seem to be a lot less controversial now. At the time I made it, it was probably a little bit more controversial. 
Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. I, I find that more and more this is seen as both ex- not only acceptable, but desirable. So w- when those people ask you, like, how can I do something similar? What do you tell them? I tell them that, first of all, I'm not a great source of advice because the way I got into this position was pure luck. <laughs> you know, I just got a call out of nowhere. So it's hard for me to give advice about that. Even in the business world, I talk to people and they go, you, wait a second, you went from absolutely no experience in corporate America in, in a public for profit environment to being an executive VP of Fortune 50 company. How did that happen? You know, and so that's a tough thing to expect, but there is certainly opportunities for smaller health plans and then kind of rise up through the ranks. That type of situation does exist all the time. I think more and more payers like Centene are understanding that the best people can come from the provider side, not the payer side. For instance, Centene, nearly uh, 90% of all of our revenues go back into patient care. That represents about $100 billion. So if we made a 1% improvement in our utilization, in other words, we kept our members 1% healthier, let's just use that as a surrogate word, we would improve the bottom line by $1 billion for Centene. And so payers are learning more and more that, hey, if you can get leadership that actually knows how to take care of people and make a big clinical difference, that's the strongest way to an ROI. Now, let me put in contrast that our GNA, our general administrative cost, is about 10%. So that's about $10 billion. If you made a 1% difference in $10 billion, it's only $100 million. So did I get the math right? I think I got the math right. So a, a 1% difference there is $100 million versus a $1 billion, you know. So that's a, a big, big difference. You know, in other words, on the business side, you can make a $100 million difference. But on the clinical side, you can make a $1 billion difference. So getting people that have a business sense, like an MBA, but are really strong clinicians, there's a big market for that. Okay, so what I tell people is I think an MBA is really, really valuable if you get it after you become a great doctor and know how to be a great doctor first. There's a lot of people that have MBAs and MDs nowadays, but not a lot of them are also great doctors. What the business world needs is people who really understand how to take care of people and make a clinical difference. And that's where you kind of differentiate yourself. Well, if there were ever a take-home point from this interview, I would say that that's probably it. Wow, thank you. Healthcare technology has been more important today than ever, especially given the recent couple of years we're all going through. I'm curious, before we close out, are, are there any trends that you're noticing, technologies you're excited about for the next year or so? The technology that I think is the future of medicine is clinical decision support either on the clinician side or patient decision support. So the knowledge universe for medicine is doubling almost yearly now. Pretty soon, either we super specialize as physicians or the knowledge information that we need to know in order to take care of people will surpass what a brain can utilize and become more what a computer needs to assimilate for us. So clinical decision support through machine learning algorithms and stuff like that. I mean, it's pretty well established that algorithms perform better than people's opinions for the general public, not on an individual basis, but in general for any disease process, algorithms perform better than actual 
individual decisions by physicians. And we are really getting to an age of ginormous amounts of data, and that data is being used to develop algorithms to really help the vast majority of people. It'll help standardize care, it'll help standardize indications, and it will really improve both the outcomes and the value of what we do in medicine. And that's what I've been pretty excited about. There's many companies that are really dealing with this now, and decisions have to be made by physicians as well as patients based on evidence. And these type of support platforms are really coming into play. I do think that there will be virtual health plans in the future. There will be a lot more virtual care for more of the everyday average things that will be based on these type of clinical decision support algorithms so that doctors can focus on on a little more esoteric issues. But yes, technology is going to play a big role. Now, you know, the biggest reason why medicine has been so expensive is that we have never been able to figure out how to scale the doctor-patient relationship. What I mean by that is today, I see a similar number of patients in my clinic as a doctor did 100 years ago. I perform surgeries in a given day about the same number as a surgeon did maybe 100 years ago. Maybe at best, it's a two-fold improvement, but it's not like a hundred-fold improvement, like how, how much faster a computer is, for instance, than it was five years ago, in fact, right? So it's always been anchored by that. And with a new generation of people that are more attuned to digital interactions, perhaps we're on the edge of a dramatic change there where that anchor may not exist as much. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, I think we're nearing the end of the show, but as tradition on the slice, I have to ask you what either your favorite type of pizza or favorite pizza place is. (laughs) My favorite pizza that I tend to get every time I visit New York City is Joe's Pizza. (laughs) Solid, solid answer. And the place I usually go is East Village One. Nice. Uh, I was just there a few weeks ago. It definitely holds up. Dr. Yamaguchi, thank you so much for joining us at The Slice and for some of your just incredible insight into healthcare and healthcare innovation. All right. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate being on your show and congratulations for all the great work you're doing and what also is doing too. It's, it's really exciting stuff. Well, that was a very interesting discussion. The thing I take home from that conversation with Dr. Yamaguchi is that when opportunity knocks, you should really answer the call because he didn't really expect that to turn into what it did, but it was something incredible. Another point is that A trend you're seeing more and more is that we as physicians and healthcare professionals really need to be involved with business, technology, and innovation to drive the direction of the innovation and avoid situations like what we're all dealing with with electronic medical record systems. And I think Dr. Yamaguchi's story is just a great example of healthcare professionals taking ownership over our future. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice.